about worship tonight, and I lost a week because we lost power, so I'm trying to cram two sermons into one. So let's get, so get your coffee now, is what I'm saying. And it's even worse than you think because I haven't even started the sermon yet. I'm still rambling about announcement type stuff. So that's the bad news, but here's the good news. Who was here last week and heard me talk about the offering, about how I felt like the Lord told me to bump up the goal to $1,000, 100% increase over where it was before. And I gave a testimony in faith and I said, we set it at 100, immediately exceeded it. We set it at 300, immediately exceeded it. I set it at 500, immediately exceeded it. So I said, hey, we're going to see if by faith God will immediately exceed it. Check it out. I, I, if you're new, I don't talk about money hardly at all. This is the second time, and last week was the first. But if you look at your offering or your, uh, your uh, little bulletin here that I do every week, you will see that last week's offering was $1,270. That's not the crazy thing. If you look at last week's bulletin, if you have one, for last week's offering on last week's bulletin, I have N.A., not applicable. This was because of the power outage. Guys, remember that? We had house church. Three hours of prayer and worship. I didn't take an offering. You know, we have ways to give online. We have electronic giving. I figured if people want to give, they'll give. That's cool. I got the numbers from that week today, and it was $1,002 without even taking an offering. So maybe... Maybe we won't have usher jobs open up. No, I'm just kidding. We will. Got to take an offering. But guys, that's awesome. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for that provision. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in this place. We thank you that you, you care about like, material needs as well. And you're bringing up the finances to meet those needs. And we pray that you will bless us as people and as a church. But also bless this building. Make this physical space what you want it to be with these funds. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in a year-long series. Oh my gosh, a year-long series. Yes, a year-long series. And it is on spiritual growth. And this mini-series within the series is on our identity. It's on who we are. Growing in the inward journey is what we're calling it. Growing in our true identity and cutting off things that are our false identity. Copy that? Yes. All right, everybody copies that. Today's message, I was going to call 19 different things. Couldn't come up with a witty title because I'm trying to smash two sermons that I wanted to do into one. So it's got a really boring sounding title, Worship. <laughs> and the subtitle, Activity, Identity, Lifestyle, and Application. That's how you know you're going to need coffee when the subtitle is like six words. <laughs> so if you need to get up and get something, go ahead. And let me say this before we start. I love this whole message. It doesn't have a lot of comedy, you know. I'm going to tell you right off the bat, maybe it's not the smoothest cadence of flow that I've ever written, but everything in it is awesome. So I just encourage you, own the chunks. Own the chunks. There's a lot of chunks in here. And in Campbell's Soup and this sermon, that's good. All right? Amen. So we need to answer a question. What is Worship. What is worship? There's a lot in the Bible about worship. There's a lot of commands about worship. And I'm going to try to answer this. This is really the first sermon. You guys ready for what is worship? Here are some slides. I don't endorse this. I, I haven't read anything from this guy, but I saw this slide online. <laughs> I love it. 
So we got a guy bowing, then he gets up a little bit. Then on the third slide, you know he's going off the rails by the third slide because he's got shoes on. <laughs> and good night, he's got heels on his shoes and gel in his hair in phase four. And in, in stage six, he's, you know, he's got hair, he's straight to the pit probably. I mean, we got hair gel. But we might think of worship when we see these images, even if I didn't tell you we were talking about worship, right? Person kneeling, person playing guitar, maybe that doesn't immediately strike you as worship, but we just had pretty awesome worship, didn't we not, with some music. So I, this guy's got a real pessimistic view of that, and I don't endorse that. But these images, I see people worshiping this way. Here's another one. Does this say worship to you, or has it in your background? Because we might look at that and we might think, well, that's kind of a funny image, you know? Obviously, a Roman Catholic service, they are all gussied up in their traditional stuff. I don't understand all of what's going on here because that's not my tradition now. But everybody in that room and those people acknowledge that they are worshiping. At least they think so. Would, would we think that that's worship? Maybe, I don't know. Well, how about this one? What about this says worship? It's, it's a lamb with his feet tied up and he's about to have what happened to him? He's about to be slaughtered. In the Old Testament, this was worship. When they were going to worship, they were going to temple, and a lot of what that meant was offering sacrifices. So the guy at the guitar worshiped, the guy bowing worshiped, the people in the robes worshiped, the, the lamb about to be slaughtered worshiped. What are we talking about? Is it possible to come up with a, a working definition? And, and I want to just say, I think that worship is an activity. Worship is an activity. Here's the outline of biblical usage from the blue letter Bible app, which I will plug every sermon faithfully until all of you say that's enough. We've all got the app and you show me. When that happens, I'll quit. Here we go. To kiss the hand in token of reverence among the Orientals, especially the Persians, to fall upon the knees and touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence. So like the guy in the first slide. In the New Testament... It means by kneeling or prostration to do homage to one, to make obeisance. And I think that means to express profound reverence and respect. I had to look it up. I still have to do that. Whether in order to express respect or to make supplication, also used of homage shown to men and beings of superior rank. So all of this implies action. And this painting of David and Mephibosheth, excuse me, this is a pretty biblical view of worship. You have a king that has reverence and honor owed to him, and the person is falling down at his feet. He has a posture. Does that make sense? He's bowed down. He's low. His head is to the ground. And he's worshiping, but he's expressing a few different things. He could be ready to make a request right now, or he could just be praising the king. He'd be saying, king, you're great. Thank you for what you've done. Or he could be preparing to say, hey, I need a loan. We don't know. But the posture is the same. It's reverent. It's giving honor to someone that's greater to him. Agree? Agree. But the Bible goes one step further. It doesn't just let us think of worship as an activity. It's not just something you do. Even in the Old Testament, God really doesn't like it. When he sees the heart of people, and they're going through the motions, but their hearts are not worshiping. Well, how can your heart bow down? Is that even possible? Yes, it is. You guys know the story... Some of us who had to go to church three days a week like I do. I love you, Mom. We know the stories. So there's a story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, right? 
and Jesus is getting a little too prophetically accurate with this woman, and she wants to change the subject. She's starting to feel really uncomfortable. He's asking some tough questions. So she tries to divert by asking a worship question, and Jesus says this to her. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. He's comparing and contrasting the Samaritan people with the Jewish people. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, coming from that background, thinking of worship as an activity, you're bowing down, maybe you're sacrificing, you're doing stuff, you're offering service, that has to come from the heart. He's saying, your heart needs to bow down. Your heart needs to be paying reverence and homage to God. And in fact, the very old commentator, Matthew Henry, says this about this passage. Because the Father seeks such worshipers of him, this intimates that there has been, will be to the end, a remnant of such worshipers. His seeking such worshipers implies his making them such. That's, that's huge. The fact that he wants it means that he's helping us to become that. He wants it, he's going to get it. He's going to make us that way. He's going to tinker with our hearts, as I like to say. He's going to help us to worship him in spirit and in truth. God is in all ages gathering into himself a generation of spiritual worshipers. To God, the posture of your heart is more important than the posture of your body. Amen. That's why I kind of take issue with the first slide I showed you. Because hair gel doesn't mean you're not worshiping. Yep. Neither do trendy shoes. Neither do skinny jeans. Although they can hinder certain movements. Like depending on how skinny you are. <laughs> they can hinder worship. If you intend to bow down, I wouldn't do it in front of everyone. It might be a horrible mishap. <laughs> Modern style is bad for that kind of worship. But God cares about the posture of your heart. And worshiper, when your heart is postured in reverence, when your heart is bowed down, when your heart is low before God to give reverence and to give praise, worshiper becomes part of your identity. It shifts from just something you do to someone you are. And when that happens, another fantastic transition takes place. You discover that your whole life becomes worship. Who was here for the Henry Nouwen message when we talked about prayer? And Henry Nouwen makes the point that if you think of prayer as going with your mind into your heart with God, suddenly your whole life becomes an activity of prayer because you're processing everything with God. Very similar. If your heart is in a posture of reverence, your whole life will become worship and it'll be almost effortless. Listen to this in Romans 12, 1 to 2. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper, what's that word? Worship. Worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Your life should be worship. And in case we think he's just talking about our body, like what does that mean to like just lay my body down? Like, dear God, take my right arm. That's not what he means. David Guzik 
sheds this light on the passage. It is best to see the body here as a reference to our entire being. Whatever we say about our spirit, soul, flesh, and mind, we know that they each live in our bodies. When we give the body to God, the soul and spirit go with it. Present your bodies means that God wants you and not just your work. You may do all kinds of work for God, but never give him yourself. Paul is saying, lay all of you, your psyche, your emotions, your physical body, your spirit, lay it down as a sacrifice before God. You owe him that, and that's your true worship. And I actually think that the verse before that gives a hint to what that might look like. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed. I think that's what happens when you're laying your life down as a sacrifice. You begin to look more like God. And that helps you process life like God, which makes your life an act of worship. Concluding sermon number one. (laughs) If you need coffee, go get it now. Here's some review before story time, which is part two. Worship is an activity. True worship comes from your heart, and that makes your whole life an activity of worship. I believe that that's the way it's supposed to go. When your heart is bowed down in a posture of reverence to God, praising Him, giving respect and honor to Him, knowing how great He is, what you do should reflect that. That makes sense, right? That's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Well, Paul talked about an interesting thing that happens when you do that. He said you'll be able to discern the will of God. Did you catch that? That's really neat. So I want to read a story. It's my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. It's long. It's a whole chapter. And I want to look at what it looks like to live life as a worshiper. What does it look like to face challenges when your heart is bowed down in reverence to God and everything you do is processed through that grid of having a disposition of worship on the inside? Are you guys ready to read my favorite story in the whole Bible? All right, it's long. 2 Chronicles 20. Chronicles, where the heck is that? We're deep in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about some people whose names we can't pronounce. This is going to be great. From places that we can't pronounce. This is, this is good. Now, sermon number two. I came up with a catchy title. Worshiping in times of trouble. That's not it, actually. The catchy title was going to be worshiping like a boss. But then I decided that doesn't quite capture it either. So we went with, what the heck is that? Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Dear Lord, help me or we're all dead. <laughs> Subtitled, Worshiping in Times of Trouble. <laughs> Worshiping like a boss. All right, here we go. Deep breaths for Anthony. <sighs> this is the, I feel like I'm going for a record. I need a commentator. Like this is the longest piece of scripture I've ever read in a sermon. My mom's like, read it. I want to get out of here before 10. <laughs> Sit there and be nice. Here we go. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, I hope I'm saying that right, came against Jehoshaphat, who may be shortened to Joe periodically, just a heads up, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom and from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazan Tamar, that is, and Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem 
in the house of the Lord before the new court. That's in the temple, guys. They're in the temple. And he said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house, he's talking about standing before the temple, and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Madaniah, a Levite of the house of Asaph. In the midst of the assembly, he, in the midst of the assembly, and he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel, and you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the, and the Korahites and the, the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Intermission. And we continue. <laughs> and they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, this is my favorite part, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. And when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked towards the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground, 
none had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the Valley of Baraka. Spoiler alert, that means the Valley of Blessing. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Baraka to this day. And they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the sound, to the house of the Lord. Second Chronicles 21 to 28. Amen. That is my favorite story in the whole Bible. I had some times in my life where I didn't know what to do. I felt like I couldn't beat the thing that was coming at me. And this passage jumped out and I felt the Holy Spirit in my heart. Just give me permission to claim it. You know, like just hold on to this. Read this over and over and over. I mean, I've fasted and read this every day. It was intense. And this happened. I didn't have to fight. God won. Amazing turnaround. I never would have seen it coming. But this is my favorite story. And I want to talk about some lessons from this story. Remember, be nice to me. This is sermon number two. I'm not going to get to preach for a month, so need some coffee. Go get it. Here we go. First, let's talk about the posture of King Joe's heart. For the sake of this slide, he's Jonah. I don't think he'd mind if he was here. Jehoshaphat was committed to following and fearing the Lord and having a country that did the same. The chapter before this, we read in 2 Chronicles 19, that Jehoshaphat went out among the people and brought them back to the Lord. The king goes out among the people as an evangelist to win them back to God. And not only that, he appoints judges. And he said to the judges, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do. He goes out, establishes judges, wins the people back to God, and he doesn't stop there. Moreover, in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat appointed certain Levites and priests and heads of families of Israel. He's setting up a whole structure of rule that gives glory to God and judges according to God's judgment in the whole nation. And he's doing it himself to give judgment for the Lord and to decide disputed cases. They had their seat at Jerusalem, and he charged them, Thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord, in faithfulness, and with your whole heart. It's important to him that his officials know we are doing this for God. Our position, our hearts have to be bowed down in reverence. We need to be afraid of the one that we, that we owe fear to in this sense. And we need, to, we need to do our jobs well. That's the posture of his heart. I don't know what to call that except a worship, worshipful heart. The problem comes, and the problem is an undefeatable enemy again. I, I think this has been a thing with Israel since Israel was Israel. I don't know that it will stop. I hope one day it does. But sadly, this is not an uncommon thing. So what do we have in this story? We have this king who has a worshipful heart, and three nations are about to beat up on him. They cannot win. They cannot win. This is like the scene, okay? It's like this hopeless. You know, when Aragorn and the Lord of the Rings, they're like, we literally have no idea what to do. It's only a matter of time before they come squash us. We might as well attack because it's hopeless anyway. So not quite the same situation, but the odds were probably about the same, you know? I tried to get the picture where they're surrounded, but it didn't work. So this is a bad situation, and we're about to see how a king who has the heart of a worshiper handles a situation like this. 
How does this work? How do you lead your people through that? You guys ready? Yeah. All right. Number one, a worshiper like Joe, his first instinct is to rely on God. When he finds out, it says, then Jehoshaphat was afraid. Okay, who wouldn't be afraid? It's not wrong, but he did the right thing with that fear, didn't he? He was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. His first instinct, oh, I know where my help comes from. I know what to do. We go to God. That God that I bow down in front of. That God that I've instructed all my people to give fear to and reverence. Well, not my problem. I'm going to him. A worshiper's first reaction is to go to God. By the way, you are free to do that as a child of God. You were not free to do that before. Kind of working the freedom theme into this. This kind of takes the pressure off. So many sermons from here. This is why I have to try not to go an hour. Moving forward. Patient with me. Check these verses out. Then, Je- Okay, 2 Chronicles 16, 9. This is what God said to Jehoshaphat's dad, Asa, in a similar situation after he messed up. It says, The eyes of the Lord, Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Jehoshaphat's dad relied on God once, and then the next time a huge unconquerable army came by, he decided, eh, I got this. I'll just take some treasures from the temple and pay off another king to attack him. And he got a giant head slap from the Lord. Not a good idea. But a worshiper goes to God first. Number two, a worshiper knows how to be bold with God. Do you notice how bold Jehoshaphat was when he was praying? So his first instinct, he's afraid, no doubt. Then he takes his fear to the Lord, and listen to what he says. He says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, and your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He's, you know, I think it was Spurgeon who said that the omnipotent prayer, the all-powerful prayer of the saints, is to say, dear Lord, do what you said you would do. (laughs) He knows how to be bold. He goes right to testimony. A worshiper can't help testifying about God's goodness, even in a situation like this. This is where he gets his courage. He's being bold with God. We're told to go boldly before the throne of grace in Hebrews chapter 4. And he goes boldly before the Lord, and it seems like he's giving an attitude like, aren't you God of heaven and earth? Didn't you do all this stuff? But it's testimony. He's so saturated with God's goodness, even trying not to piddle himself because he has three armies coming to kill him. He's testifying about God's goodness. This is how he's bold. Number three, a worshiper can easily admit dependence. When your heart is bowed down, when you are busy inside in your psyche and your spirit giving reverence and honor to God, admitting you don't know what to do is suddenly not that big of a deal. Look at what Jehoshaphat said. Oh, our God, this is in front of all of his people. Will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Wow. You know, I don't think the news would have so much news to report if uh, our politicians had hearts of worship. (laughs) What do you think about this? Oh, gosh, I really don't know. I need to think about that more. End of interview. It'd be a lot less words. It'd be so simple. As a general rule, the closer you are to God, the more humble you will be. It's almost unavoidable. 
and worshipers enjoy being in God's presence. And let me just say, I'm not talking about an elite sect of Christians. And I'm not talking about those people that just really like to sing really loud and go crazy during singing worship. Because singing is only a tiny, itty bitty little part of what worship is. You know, there are people who like to worship with their giving, and there are people who worship by giving their time, and there are people that worship with service in a million ways that we don't even see on Sunday morning. Those people enjoy being in the presence of God in all those different ways, and you can tell them by their humility. Man, worshipers just stick out, and this is available to all of us. This is not an elite group. Jehoshaphat had this. Number four, a worshiper expects a response. Look at what he did. He's afraid. He doesn't just go to God in his room with the door shut. He calls an assembly. He calls a fast for the whole country. It says, meet me at the temple. We're going to be bold before the Lord. And then he says this. It says this in, in 2 Chronicles 20. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. After his prayer, he shuts up and they wait. He's like, well, here, waiting to hear from the Lord. Can you imagine like all these people, they've been fasting, maybe they're a little grumpy. He's just admitted utter dependence. He has no idea what to do. I'm powerless. Yeah, I'm the king, but I don't have this one, guys. Oh, Lord, our eyes are on you. Full stop. And he expects a response. And he gets one. The spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. And he gives the Lord's response. That is not a surprise to Jehoshaphat because he's a worshiper. Amen. Number five. Is this a good pace? You guys staying awake? It's good? All right. You guys are doing great for two sermons in one. Own the chunks. Own the chunks. So many chunks. This is chunky, chunky message. Number five. A worshiper can praise from a promise. Jehoshaphat praised from a promise. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. This is right after Jehaziel gives his word and says, you're not going to have to worry about it. You're not going to have to fight. Just go out tomorrow, face them. God's going to fight on your behalf. They're still coming. Nothing's happened yet. But Jehoshaphat bows down with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. I love this scene. So they all fall down. And the people whose job it is to sing, stand up. Look at this. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Very loud. So some people are worshiping by bowing down. These guys are worshiping by crying out how good God is. And the next day, this is what Jehoshaphat tells his army. They're about to go to battle. And when he had taken counsel with the people, think about it, it's 4 a.m., you're still tired, you could be going to your death, you're not sure, but the king says it's going to be fine, okay? And the king says this to his people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army. He puts worshipers in front, and you know what they sing as they go? They sing, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever, they're praising God for deliverance. They're thanking him for his love. And they're still right here. Nothing has happened yet. They're still utterly surrounded by the enemy. They're, you, know, you know that scene in the Lord of the Rings where the sun rises and then the enemies come and the heroes come over the hill and they rout the enemy. That has not happened. Now this would be like, they're in Helm's Deep and it's the five of them and the old man and the little kid. And <laughs> thank you God for your deliverance. 
You know, a worshiper can worship from a promise because the word of God is good enough for him. The word of God saying, I will deliver to a worshiper is just as good as God coming over the hill. They see it. Number seven, worshipers understand that worship is war. We, we know it. Worship is war. And say, well, they actually didn't wage war. It was God waging war on their behalf. Okay, all right, fine, get picky. But there's something proactive. There's something you know, antagonistic in a good way about worshiping God. Look at this. When they began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against the nations who had come against Judah. The Lord set the ambush when they began to sing in praise. Their response of faith somehow moved things along. And the Lord sets a trap. And the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Do you understand the scene is, they're leaving Jerusalem. They're leaving home base. 4 a.m., bleary-eyed. Jehoshaphat says, let's put the worshipers in front. You guys sing. What are we supposed to sing? We're going to go get slaughtered. That's what's going to happen. It's like, I want you to sing about how faithful God is. They sing about his steadfast love. Okay, he's the king. Praise you, Lord. Your steadfast love endures forever. Meanwhile, miles away, the Lord responds to their faith, causes chaos in the enemy's camp. And by the time they make it over there, they see that there's literally nothing to do. God's already been very busy. God was working their deliverance when they were singing their bleary-eyed praises. Isn't that amazing? Just trucking right along. Own the chunks. Guys are doing good. Number eight. Worshippers are first in line for God's blessing. I'm stretching this one. I'll admit it. It's not in the text. But this is what I think. Let me just read it first. They looked toward the horde. This is when they get to the watchtower, and they'll be able to see. The prophet said they're going to be by the ascent of Z's. So they go to the watchtower, and they look in faith, expecting the people to be where the prophet said they'd be. And behold, none had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. Here's what I think. I don't think they broke ranks. This is totally Anthony reading into the text. This is, we have entered the opinion zone, so feel free to disagree. But I just get this image of these worshipers who've been worshiping in faith at the front of the army. And they understand now, everybody's dead. There's nothing to do but go and collect the goods, the spoil of war. Gosh, I just have to believe that Jehoshaphat said, you know what, worshipers? You go first. You are in front. You go first and you pick what you want. You get to the spoil first. I suspect, okay, I'm pushing it, going on suspicion, exiting opinion zone. Everybody got blessed, so it worked out well. This story shows that the life of a worshiper is a cycle of worship. Isn't this cool? On the fourth day, three days of just taking the goodies, a threat of the enemy turned into the biggest unexpected Christmas present ever. That's what faith can do. On the fourth day, they assembled in the Valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Baraka to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. Did you catch it? 
Did you see it? This story ends exactly where it starts. Their first instinct was to go to the house of the Lord. And guess what happens? They worshiped. God spoke, they praised with a loud voice, it said. They go out, God is faithful. They come back a few days later with the goods, straight to the house of the Lord, where they praise. I think the implication is, quite loudly and raucously, probably, with a lot more new stuff. This is a cycle of worship. They started with worship, they end with more worship. Jehoshaphat starts by being afraid and going to God boldly and reciting testimony after testimony of God's goodness. And he comes back a few days later with a new one. Jehoshaphat's son, if he had Jehoshaphat's heart, which I didn't read ahead, I don't remember he does, poor guy. He could have claimed everything Jehoshaphat claimed plus one. And for my dad, you did blah, blah, blah. It is a cycle of worship, increasing worship for God. So I'm going to end with three different places you may find yourself, and I'm going to challenge you to find yourself in one of them. As I, to use Bill Johnson's words, we have to crash land this thing. I don't have second service coming in, but everybody would like to get home before 10. So here we go. Jehoshaphat's first step was to set his heart in a posture of worship. He cared about how he led and how he was living his life. And let me give you a, a, a tip. You don't have to be perfect for this. Jehoshaphat messed up. If you read 2 Chronicles 18 and 19, he, he did some really dumb stuff. He went against the counsel of the Lord, almost got killed, cried out for God to help him, and then God helped him. He didn't always do everything perfectly, but he cared that the posture of his heart was to give reverence and honor to God and do things his way. And if you haven't done that, now is the time. And if you say, I just messed up a few days ago, hey, the last time Jehoshaphat was in battle, he almost died because he was sinning in the battle he was in. And God still showed up when he cried out. Cry out today. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what your yesterday was. Set your heart to have a heart of worship. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Amen. Okay, here we go. Number two. Maybe you've already done that. But now life is challenging. Now life is hard. And a lot of different impossible foes show up in our life. This is true if you've lived longer than, well, everybody knows this. It's, I don't even need an analogy. Hard stuff happens. This is the real world. And if it's happening to you and that problem is confronting you, now is the time to worship independence. Admit dependence. Admit you're powerless if you're powerless. If you don't know what to do, say it. Sometimes that's the most worshipful thing that you can do is say, dear God, I don't got this. Literally have no idea. But I'm dependent on you. You can do it. I know you can do it. I've seen you do it before. And once you've done that, seek a response. Expect an answer. Look for the breakthrough. Because that's the next... God is going to come through. He's going to do what he said he would do. He wants us to be a cycle of worship. Admit dependence. Look for the response. And if you've done that, maybe you've done it a few times, maybe you've been tracking with the Lord for years and years and years, you're, you know, uh, an old saint, so to speak, when you've been on this cycle, well, I just want to encourage you, praise Him for His promises. Even if you're not currently in a struggle, don't wait for that. Praise Him for His promises anyway. There's tons of them in the Bible. Find a testimony, stir that up in your heart, and remember His goodness. And look forward in expectation. And maybe it's not for you right now, maybe life is pretty good, but when you worship, I just encourage you to think, my praise of God 
is war. And the enemy loses ground when I give praise and reverence to God. Amen. Amen? All right. Come on. Amen. This priest on worship is like, amen. Amen. That was good. All right, it was long. Thank you guys so much. Let's close in prayer.